This is the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city, or on one of our appreciated radio syndicate partners, or on the podcast at greenmajority.ca. This is your premier stop for environmental morning. I am uh, David Hostetter in studio with Stefan Hostetter. How you doing? In this first segment, we're going to talk about a, uh, an article by uh, Michael Schellenberger for Forbes. Yeah. Which was requested by a listener uh, two weeks in a row. friend of the show asked for is. this article. There it is. We listen. A, a, the UN report, which uh, has come out this week, the UN report on our emissions gap, that is coming out annually, and uh, some weather stuff. So let's get into the Schellenberger. So an environmental policy writer by the name of Michael Schellenberger, who was a Time magazine hero of the environment back in 2008, published an article in Forbes this week, originally titled, Why Everything They Say About Climate Change is Wrong, accompanied by pictures of Greta Thunberg, AOC, Bill McKibben, an XR activist, and a koala. The title was then changed to Why Apocalyptic Claims About Climate Change Are Wrong, possibly because someone uh, realized that an article attacking hyperbole shouldn't have a hyperbolic heading. Schellenberger has published several articles in Forbes under that same impishly clickbait title with the formula Why Everything They Say About Blank Is Wrong, including pictures of famous people who have spoken out about some issue. As Emily Atkin points out for her blog, Heated, this could have something to do with Forbes' opinion contributors being paid in accordance with clicks and shares rather than the quality of their content. In any case, in this piece, Schellenberger lists some of the most dire statements made by the people he pictures in an attempt to discredit them, but all he really ends up with is a trivial slew of rhetorical grievances. He quotes uh, AOC as saying, for instance, that the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. He quotes Thunberg as saying that around 2030, we will be in a position to set off an irreversible chain reaction beyond human control that will lead to the end of our civilization as we know it. Schellenberger also rejects statements uh, made by scientists to the effect that four degrees Celsius of warming would reduce world population to less than a billion people that multi-breadbasket failure is becoming more likely, and that sea level rise could become unmanageable. Schellenberger blames these statements for harming the mental health of children, aggravating activists to extreme measures, polarizing people and distracting from other issues. He writes, quote, I also care about getting the facts and science right, and have in recent months uh, corrected inaccurate and apocalyptic news media coverage of fires in the Amazon and fires in California, both of which have been improperly presented as resulting primarily from climate change. In the links he provides for this statement, however, it's clear that by news media coverage, he means tweets from politicians and famous people. He does not give proof of any actual news outlet doing what he's decrying. He then argues that no real science claims that climate change threatens apocalypse. Perhaps he hasn't read the report titled Trajectories of the Earth System in the Anthropocene, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences last year. That was the famous Hothouse Earth study we covered on this show. You can find our episode called Hothouse Earth, Colonialism and Hypocrisy from August 2018, if you'd like to hear a summary. 
Schellenberger also tries to take down an XR spokesperson who argued on television that disasters are getting worse. Schellenberger represents the IPCC as refuting her when it stated, quote, There is robust evidence of disasters displacing people worldwide, but limited evidence that climate change or sea level rise is the direct cause. In addition to Schellenberger's misrepresentation of climate change here, which is rarely scientifically spoken of as a direct cause of anything, the link that Schellenberger provides for this statement is not even the right one, and nowhere in the document he links to can this quote be found. He goes on to claim that people will simply migrate within their own countries to avoid climate change, that countries will easily be able to adapt to sea level rise, that temperature rise will only marginally affect wheat yields, that more coal should be burned in India in order to reduce their emissions by 2070, and that developing countries have to choose between emissions and poverty. He points out that economic development has caused a 99% decline in deaths from natural disasters since 1931, that the IPCC and one Yale economist predict that the global economy will keep growing massively through 2100, and that warming of up to 4 degrees Celsius would reduce GDP by only a tiny fraction of that growth, and that crop yields are projected to continue increasing through 2050. Schellenberger reduces the impacts of climate change to simply putting a few beloved species at risk, and then argues that climate change doesn't even matter much in that regard either. He finally, he says, quote, climate scientists are starting to push back against exaggerations by activists, journalists, and other scientists. He then quotes Ken Caldera of Stanford as uh, saying that climate change does not threaten human extinction, and that we should not have to lie to people in order to get them to do the right thing. But in the very article uh, he links to, in which Caldera makes that statement, the same scientist also states that he supports Extinction Rebellion. So even though Caldera doesn't believe that every last human will be wiped out if we don't act soon enough, he also believes that the extreme tactics of XR that Schellenberger rejects are still necessary. Yeah, so first I think the, the most important thing to start with is putting in context who wrote this article um, and Michael Schellenberger wrote the article. Well, Michael Schellenberger wrote the article uh, who runs a thing called the breakthrough Institute. Okay. I don't know. I don't believe um, the person you reference in, in this, in the, the end of that specific Ken Caldera works for them, but he uh -huh. does reference a different climate scientist named Tom something uh -huh. um, in the article who also does work directly for the same Institute. So he's, he's quoting someone who works basically for him. Uh, as as proof, proof that point. other people agree with him without even in the article doesn't even call that out. And if I can just put a very, very small, which is not relatively not important, but it irks me. The One of the most frustrating things about this article is that it came out in Forbes, largely in response to this whole thing about koalas going functionally extinct, mm -hmm. which was primarily pushed by Forbes. He blames Bill McKibben in this, but like the article that Forbes published about it, it was the one that I saw multiple times. Mm -hmm. So here he is in Forbes decrying this 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 extensive uh, overstatement it, from the fact that Forbes itself published the other article. Anyways, but the, neither of those are. They need those clicks. Well, exactly, right? They need those clicks. Yeah, but the so Breakthrough Institute has this has a long history of contrarian takes. Um, I, very quickly, I'm going to quote from the Center for Ethics at, at Harvard. Mm. And, it, and it says, I quote, the Breakthrough Institute has a clear history as a contrarian outlet for information on climate change and regularly criticizes environmental groups. One writer describes them as, and quote, a program for hippie punching your way to fame and fortune. <laughs> 
so so this is this is who is 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 saying this right this is a this is a this is the kind of thing where <laughs> you you rest your your environmental credentials on on things you've done in the past or on on particular types of work and then you use that to push uh your own agenda you know uh you know you, you've done some some research on 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 this guy he's he's published a whole bunch of stuff against renewable energy he seemingly has a has a TED talk where he's decided he's into pro nuclear now um, you know, he's into natural gas. He's, 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 he was against nuclear for a very long time. And right. then a lot of nuclear groups were refuting him and saying he sucks. Right. Then he had a change of heart. Mm. And he has a TED talk called, uh, why renewable energy will not save the planet. Right. And he has articles about how renewable energy is, uh, killing spe- endangered species. Yeah. He, they also came out against the ca- price on carbon. Um, so that's just who publishes that. But I think, that's important, but so is understanding the reasons why this article is 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 flawed in in its in itself. Which I just want to sort of break down briefly as a reason to explain why why this comes across as feeling like it's reasonable. Um, why, but but misses a lot of points. I guess you know it comes across. It's able to act as if it's being quite moderate while taking very unscientific positions, mm-hmm. shall we say. Uh, and, the, and the first, so you referenced, uh, you know, previously, is the idea that, that no, no, that the quote, no credible scientific body has ever said that climate change threatens the collapse of civilization, much less the extinction of the human species. And there's a bunch of things there. A, what's the word credible mean? <laughs> um, and B, that scientist's job is not to forecast, you know, 100, 200 years in the future. It is to explain how things are, are progressing and what could happen. The modeling itself, you know, can provide things. And there's plenty of modeling, as you mentioned, that would show enough things that could go wrong that would cause the collapse of civilization. I don't think anyone, I would hope not anyone out there, is believing that in a, you know, six, eight degree warmed world that we're still totally fine. I think that seems pretty mild decline in crop yields yeah yeah the crop yields i'm coming mild drop in gdp i'm gonna get to the crop yields don't worry that is part of this but at one point in the article as you cited he attacks um i believe it's uh greta thunberg for saying that in 12 years we could be on a path towards irreversible climate change in 2030 we'll be in a position to uh yeah to lose control of our yeah, future. and that is and that is relatively strongly backed up. That twelve years, that the twelve year timeline again, which he also attacks AOC for, is not saying that the world will end in twelve years, but it's saying that we have, to, if we do not get, if we do not see significant action in twelve years, that will basically doom us to above two degrees warming. At which point there are a series of feedback loops, which we really, really should be concerned about. You know, whether or not it's the melting uh, of permafrost, uh, the methane, um, or it's the fact that, you know, at, that the oceans will stop being able to absorb as much carbon as they currently are. Honestly, you just, you just need the methane, really, to lose control. Like, the minute you have the methane, the methane is enough to probably push us to, to three or four, and then that's, uh, you know, we'll kick in a whole bunch of other things. And the, that's part of the frustration of this article that I have, is it fundamentally ignores the concept that things are interrelated. He talks as if that this idea that you can have two feet of sea level rise is not that bad because the Netherlands is seven feet under uh, under sea level. Mm-hmm. So all of Bangladesh will be okay. Well, 400 years ago, the Dutch did that. So, 
So of course it's fine. Technology has you know, changed a bit. Forget the fact that you know Bangladesh is a massive, massive place, and that a seawall is not the same kind of thing you could do there, uh, or the fact that even now we're seeing the loss of small Pacific island nations. Like this man is literally at the very least arguing that the Pacific island nations that are already that are facing it right now are are, are should just not exist. They, like if you think that the idea is that. We should keep burning coal until 2070 as, you know, and that's a reasonable tactic right now. Then you are absolutely dooming small Pacific Island nations to being totally wiped off the map, unquestionably. And and that, in my mind, is disqualifying from the get go. He does not think that wealth should be shared. Well, he just thinks that uh, developing countries need to be free uh, economically in right. the market to develop their way in the exact same way we did. Yeah. Like with no aid of our, of our better technology. Y- yeah. Which is, which is ludicrous, obviously. So like, so that's part of it, right? The part of it is, is in, interconnectedness, you know? So to get back to the crop failure bit, you know, he goes on and on in this article about how we've seen these massive increases in yield over the past, you know, over the past hundred years, um, and and how these scientific bodies are presuming only a small decrease will happen, and and yet the, and we should expect to see this keep, keep going. And one thing he highlights is literally the concept that we have so much better fertilizer now. That fundamentally ignores the fact that we're in, that the nitrogen cycle is also have in at a moment of crisis, and and that that itself is is should be a concern outside of climate change entirely. It also ignores the fact that those massive gains of productivity or, or of yield that we've seen from these places have come on the backs of making these these farms dramatically and dramatically more uh, brittle. The thing that we've invested in most is high yield, but very very brittle crops. They're very sort of monocultured. Uh, the, they require incredible investments into the soil, uh, which is part of the problem with the nitrogen cycle right now. We're having to pump so much fertilizer into the soil, which means that one kind of, you know, one bad, uh, one, one bad drought or one bad thing will really dramatically decreases yield in a way that was not true when we had much more diversified crops uh, or when we were doing things like crop rotation or taking care of our soil in, in the ways that, are, that, that, we've, that, that we know work. You know, all of these things that have got us to this high yield have also made us dramatically more at risk. And that's entirely ignored by this article. 100% ignored. But so the last two are, are one, that the idea that climate change is not going to cause mass displacements or migration, which I'd like to just make this guy move from wherever he lives now to, you know, the others to, to Missouri. You know, just, just, let's see how he does. You know, if he doesn't think that being moved from your home and where you've lived your entire life to somewhere else in your country counts as displacement, let's just make him move every year and see how he manages to do that. Anytime you're forcing people to move out of their space and displacing people is dramatically uprooting and dramatically, dramatically bad. Uh, and the more we can protect people from that problem, the, 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 the better we are. In some ways, if you go back to even, let's say, the, 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 the war in Syria is, is in some ways tied back to the fact that climate change related droughts, you know, pushed people into cities and, and, and created an atmosphere there, which sort of led to, led to some of the unrest. Like that is, that is well documented. And the last one, the last point that, that is, that is frustrating is that, we shouldn't care about biodiversity, basically, is what he's saying. 
There's a lot of here, a lot of bits here about how the fires in Australia weren't quote unquote caused by climate change, or the fires in California weren't caused by climate change. And even in his own article, he admits that the that the droughts in Australia were unusual. And that's the thing. That's what people say. What people say is that these types of things are increased. The unusual aspects of weather are increased because of climate change. And the loss of habitat, the loss of biodiversity makes these ecosystems less resilient, which leads further likely to uh, a, a deeper collapse at some point. Like Climate change is intertwined with all of the other environmental pressures that we're putting on the world. Exactly. He's acting as though climate change is this separate marginal factor. Yeah, exactly. Whether or not it's insects being, you know, being decimated by pesticides and and then also habitat loss and, and how that's affecting, say, bird populations, it increased brush fires, decreased habitats, which we're also encroaching on with our own with our own houses. In the same way that the monoculture of agriculture makes it more brittle. The loss of biodiversity in ecosystems makes them more brittle. You know, it makes, makes one other problem so much more likely to devastate the whole thing. And that's what frustrates me about this article the most. That's what frustrates me about, about the way it's worded, about the way that he talks about it, about the way that he sort of sees this. It's, it's, it's as if the biggest threat is the way that people should be scared of it and not the fact that we are seeing a systemic destruction of, of ecosystems across the world. And it's as if none of these things are connected. If there's anything that one should take away about studying the environment... It's that everything is connected, and and he just completely misses that point, or or is honestly, I would say, intentionally ignoring it. You know, bad news: we're not getting better at solving this problem, as this UN article that we are that we are covering next shows. We're not we're not getting closer to reducing these emissions. So shall I? Yeah. So Schellenberger's article, uh, which is no doubt being shared around the world by people who never wanted to have to think about the Earth to begin with comes as a new UN report on the gap between the Paris goals, our pledges, and our probable achievements, is showing that global temperatures could easily rise to around 4 degrees Celsius by 2100 if we continue with our current trajectory. The document, which is their annual emissions gap report on how we're doing with the Paris goals, gives the usual bleak outcomes of coral reefs dissolving in acid, coastal cities constantly flooding, and unbearably severe heat doing what unbearably severe heat invariably does. The report's authors say outright that the findings are bleak. They found, for instance, that countries are planning on burning 50% more fossil fuel by 2030 than is required to keep temperature rise to a manageable threshold. A Washington Post article by Brady Dennis, with help from Juliet Elprin, reads, quote, Global uh, greenhouse gas emissions must begin falling by 7.6% each year beginning 2020, a rate currently nowhere in sight. Inger Anderson of, the U- of UNEP said, quote, Our collective failure to act early and hard on climate change means we must now deliver deep cuts to emissions. The report says that countries have to triple their existing promises in order to keep warming in check, stating, quote, every year of delay beyond 2020 brings a need for faster cuts, which become increasingly expensive, unlikely, and impractical. Delays will also quickly put the 1.5 degrees Celsius goal out of reach. 
Dennis points out that emissions have been rising 1.5% every year for the past decade, and that the world has already warmed over 1 degree Celsius, and that there's no sign of emissions slowing down. But also that 70 countries have said they're planning for more ambitious pledges, companies themselves have set targets, cities are pushing ahead, and protests and concern are growing globally. Indeed, there is a global climate strike happening as we speak as part of the ongoing Fridays for Future movement. So there's one in Toronto happening right now. And and they will continue <laughs> uh, because we are not doing enough, quite clearly, right? Uh, what's interesting is that the one thing that has caused a significant uh, decrease in world emissions in the past 20 years was the Great Recession of 2008 quite significantly dropped during that time period. And, and and interestingly, even in the last couple years of Obama, I want to say, there were a couple years when emissions actually did seem to to stop. Mm-hmm. Uh only to then, you know, kick back up again as, you know, in the last couple years. And so there is uh, rumblings of an upcoming recession in 2020. And that recession or whenever this next you know the next recession hits because that's how our our capitalist system works in a pretty high boom bust kind of scenario i think that that next drop will be the time and the chance to catch up to this gap that we've been digging ourselves into a pretty big hole you know um one of the things that uh that you had in your in your notes was that uh, that some supporters of, of Schellenberger's view uh, would often point to previous tipping point predictions. Yeah, scientists and other people would be like, oh, we have five years to do this. You have six years to do this. Specifically, James Hansen gave Obama four years to save the world. Said, you, you have four years to get your stuff ready. Yeah. And, and what's interesting about that is that I don't think you could argue James Hansen is wrong yet, right? Like the, the fact that we went from, I believe in early 2000s, we could have been reducing emissions by about three-ish percent a year, two-ish, two to three percent a year, and, and kept our, our, our warming within, within reasonable levels. Mm. And, and that was not terribly difficult at the time. You know, a, a decent, you know, some sort of price on carbon and stuff like that, you know, and some, some real, some, some global efforts would probably have allowed for, for that to be possible. You know, now we're hearing 7.6%, uh, beginning next year. Every year. Every year. That's starting to get big, right? That's starting to get, especially given that we have not even peaked yet in seemingly, you know, that becomes a much, much different ask. And, and so, you know, I, I like the fact that the the Paris Agreement. I believe that these these reports were mandated by the Paris Agreement to sort of report on the gap between where we're at and where we need to be. Uh, and so these reports, I, I think, are helpful in that sort of constant reframing of, you know, when you look at even something like you know that you look at even the places that are really trying to do that are claiming to do work. You know, Canada is a great example of that. You know who. We could compare ourselves to many other countries and be like, look how good we're doing. We have a price on carbon and, and we have a leader who says he believes in climate change. And then you look at our emissions and, and how they match and uh, even how we match our own goals and how our own goals have nowhere close to matching what the Paris Agreement goals were. And that becomes a stark reality of actually how much work there is still to be done. And the IPCC is not, 
you know, is a very conservative. They're very, they're very much trying to, to understate the, the concerns. And they are highlighting just how far behind we are on these goals. These are the scientists who Schellenberger is telling us to listen to. So let's listen to them and try to reduce our emissions by almost 8% a year. And I don't see how you do that without an all-hands-on-deck kind of response that's being asked for by all the people he's writing in this article. But anyways, we, we want to get to weather. So regardless of to what degree temperature change is directly driving the rise in natural disasters worldwide, such disasters are exacerbated by that change, and human activity generally is also making all of this worse, and it appears to be happening more and more. Just this past month, there has been a drought in Zimbabwe that is putting 5.5 million people at risk of starvation and killing elephants by the hundreds, such that some describe Zimbabwe's national parks as becoming elephant graveyards due to an unending series of droughts that have also been raising the price of maize, with bread already costing 15 times as much today than it did a year ago, the worst-case scenario being that maize uh, supply runs out entirely, which could happen in weeks, and requires $350 million in international aid to avoid. Huge wildfires have raged through Australia, filling cities with smoke and killing over 1,000 koalas, fueled in part by a record-breaking drought. The fires are burning in places that aren't usually at risk, as well as covering a larger area of land than usual, and it isn't even summer there yet. Venice flooded its worst in 50 years and its second worst on record. A cyclone hit Bangladesh, forcing 2 million people to flee their homes, and a new film is out indicating the impact of bee populations on the global food supply, showing that potentially every third bite of food we take depends on honeybees, who are in decline due to pesticides, parasites, habitat loss, and rising temperatures. Finally, I'll, end, uh, I'll turn to the statements of several Bangladeshi women, interviewed for an article by Marlene Simmons in cooperation with the Environmental Justice Foundation. Women are much more likely to be displaced by disasters in Bangladesh and to face worse hardships afterwards. Since Mr. Michael, Michael Schellenberger thinks displacement is not a problem since people will just migrate within their own countries, let's look at some of the words of a few people who have done just that. Musamet Meheranessa said, quote, Things were better when my father and uncles were alive when I was still unmarried. Although there was poverty, the environment was suitable for living. Now we have Cyclone Ayla devastating us in one day. Cyclone Sitter is tearing us apart the next. Living in these conditions makes us very worried about our children. Our sleepless nights pass with worries. Masamet Juma Akhtar Akhtar said, quote, The heat has increased nowadays. The rainy season does not start timely. It starts raining when we don't need it. And the heat does not decline even after rain. Not everyone will be able to tolerate the heat. Renu Bibi said, quote, We had one to two hundred date palm trees. We made tons of sweets with those. We had coconut, jackfruit, and mango trees. But the river took away everything. Our ponds were full of fishes. When the dam was broken, I cannot speak. My heart bursts with sorrows. Helena Bilkish said, quote, World leaders should think about us. They should limit their activities that cause climate change. They should be reducing these activities and think about our benefits so we would be able to lead a good life in this world. Sharipa Bibi said, quote, We had a house. We had cows, goats, chickens, and duck. Our home was just beside the river. We thought it would never be washed away. We were dependent on the river for our livelihood. We used to catch fish. We had crops, not much, but enough to live on. The river took everything from me. I have nowhere to go. 
I want to say that if they, the rich countries causing global warming, want to keep their country nice, they should also help us to keep our country nice. But they keep their country beautiful and make our environment disastrous. Anything you'd like to say about that before we go to music break? Um, what I don't want this to be sounding like is a case for not trying. But the point that we're trying to make is not that, you know, that Schellenberger is wrong and that, that we're, we're totally going to lose this fight. I, the point I think that we're trying to make is that any action that is not trying to take this on at its most, most dire is a decision to, to allow more people to experience what these women in Bangladesh have experienced. It's to allow more land to be lost. It's allow, it's to allow more devastation to, to distract this world. Um, and so the, the call here should be for immediate and massive action and not for, you know, letting us burn coal until 2070. And uh, now we'll turn to a music break. This is Lil Ghostwriter with a song called These Demons. Demons, demons. These fallen demons. angels follow Lucifer, son of the morning, coming for the boringly good. The day will come after the heads of state ignoring Shakespeare's. They'd run things for more than eight years. Termless, these madmen, until the terminus adquem. Apocalyptic, delicious, this irony. Desiringly, the flapper after the champagne splasher laughter. This jazz age, its absurdity in. This sad stage of modernity to black fades The returningly rerun program Defunded programs under these demons Going mad under these demons The populace, the electorate These novices and inveterately engaged veterans Ever to assail the letters again Arranging them in rhyme and failing that to simultaneously be greenly growing vegetation for the oxygen, this reforestation, this sovereign nation, calling them these fallen angels, this Faustian bargain with the government funding this art, lost within the government asunder apart, someone had blundered in the dark. I wonder what we are. Diamond bright, this violent delight, this evil, these wars Shine a light on the people, their snores Reverberating in the castle, sleepwalking, sleep-talking Stephen Hawking couldn't mansplain these black holes This campaign to attack our foes lyrically These little ghost writers in the house Philanthropy delighting these in the house these monies donated to the rightly deserving in the house Steal from me and you'll be quietly ejected from the house These spies he suspected were thrown out Fuck that Mainstream of consciousness Kanye West rap That capitalist narcissist rap These childish Gambinos, Donald Glovers Who pejoratively use words such as cocksucker and other heteronormative expletives. This rap is for corporate executives and the working class, both learning fast by my return to rap, burning grass. That alas, facts is facts. I rap as rascass. 
With a face tat or Drake back to back With the diss tracks, this cat's no vanilla iced tea ghost writing his own very rhymes This black Marxist feminist songwriter as Grimes Groovily getting this rap to a level of inelegance Sophisticated, no wizard made this It is the product of industriousness That striving of the capitalist Towards the sale of cannabis You'd fail at rapping this still more than I As they clap for Feel more jive, which is nothing to listen to. Perhaps I'm a wizard too, a lyrical visionary who turns high communistical, absurd tie on his physical tattooed. MC ride in his semantic confusion could outwrap this fusion of right and wrong linguistical. Christ, this song is beautiful. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And we're back in the studio. Thank you so much to that uh, uh, musical guest here. Uh, Dave, I'm hoping that you're going to help me out and remind me who we were just listening to. That was Lil Ghostwriter. He is uh, currently residing in Vancouver, Canada. Great. And uh, I believe we uh, also should theoretically here have Lauren on the line. Lauren, do we have you there? Not just theoretically, but in practice. Whoop. Excellent. Demonstrable proof. I love it. Uh, Dave, uh, we're yours here. Uh, so first we're going to talk about a Ontario bill, which is being voted on today. Uh, Sc- Kelsey Scarfoni, the water program manager for environmental defense, published an article earlier this month about the environmental implications of Ontario's Bill 132, an omnibus bill that tackles a whole bunch of issues at once. The public consultation period is already over for this bill, and I believe it is being voted on today. So our coverage of this issue comes woefully late for Ontarians looking to subvert Mr. Uh, Doug Ford's blind crusade against the ecosystems that sustain us, but perhaps it will still prove useful to highlight the environmental deregulation Uh, couched in this bill. Under Schedule 9, the bill makes changes to the environmental protection, nutrient management, water resources, pesticides, resource recovery and circular economy, safe drinking water, and waste diversion transition acts, including removing certain regulations regarding vehicle emissions and pesticides, repealing certain environmental and nutrient and water management penalties, and removing a process by which people could complain that they have lost money over someone else's pollution. Scarfoni points out for environmental defense that the environment minister, Jess Urich, claimed that the bill would hold industrial polluters more accountable, while in fact it does the opposite. The bill will make it uh, easier and much less expensive for companies to contaminate the province's waterways by capping the total fines that an operation can wrap, rack up. The current maximum fine is $100,000 a day for each day that the contamination continues on for. The new bill will cap fines at $200,000 in total, meaning a company can dump as much toxic waste into the water as it wants, day after day, without ever exceeding a $200,000 fine. So now companies have uh, much less incentive not to ruin the drinking water in the communities they pollute, let alone muck up an ecosystem for non-human animals. 
as if we could tack a dollar figure on to environmental destruction anyway. So I'm thinking, uh, I'm trying to have on my business hat here, and I'm, I'm, I want to go to Lauren for the serious points, but my somewhat sarcastic off-the-cuff point mm. is simply that... Um, that, you know, that really opens up the field of like, well, we better pollute all at once because we want to make sure, you know, it's like when they started putting a price on the bags to put out your trash. Well, you just fill those things up to the brim, don't you? <laughs> um, but yes, uh, Lauren, do you have any ideas on this on this uh, bill? Yeah, like no groundbreaking hot takes, unfortunately, for <laughs> listeners. But, um, but no, this is just, this is so reminiscent. I, I think because I came of age in the harbor area, like so many of us did, mm. I like I hear the word omnibus bill anymore. <laughs> and I like I get my back up, the hair on the back of my neck stands up and I freak out. And this is just an example of like, understandably, conservatives continuing to pull from the harbor playbook. Because why wouldn't they? Uh, bill like C45 or C31, I think it was way back when were so effective at completely dismantling this country's environmental regulations, the ramifications of which we are still suffering from and still trying to rebuild years and years later. And 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 I can't help but see what, and we know this, it's like he's, he's pulling apart such, such intricate little things, looking at nutrient management, water resources, pesticides, and that resource recovery. Like these aren't big, glamorous, um, moves he's making. This isn't this isn't stuff around specific projects, around specific pipelines. This is this is small, minute legislation and regulation that stands to protect everyday people in really unsexy ways. And and unfortunately with this dismantling that he's been doing so effectively in the in the year and a half that he's been in power and especially with the introduction of this bill that, that I have heard virtually nothing about in the news. It's he's he is being so effective at doing exactly what we knew he was going to do. But it's it's just scary, the speed and the efficiency with which he is inflicting this damage. And unfortunately, that it's going to take us years, like I said, it's going to take us years to recover from and to build back up again because it affects so many areas in so many small ways. Yeah, that's uh, I was uh, frightened there uh, when you said he's only been in power for a year and a half. I feel like I've been wading through this mire for quite a long time. Possibly the specter of his brother is still hanging over me. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and that's that's the other thing, is that we still have almost three more years of, of this person. <laughs> and if he's done this, all, like, at, at least with Harper, he took his time and eased us into the destruction, whereas this is just hitting us like a ton of bricks, and it's like, geez, what else is he going to do in the next three years? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have anything more astute than that to say. Yeah. Well, I think the like one of the one of the things that frustrates me particularly about it because my focus is always like you know political messaging and how things are accomplished in 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 the real politics space um, is that you know this is really just a symptom of like I've said before the real danger of you know uh, of Doug was that he was just as just as crooked as uh, the rest of them but he's a little bit smarter than the average uh, bearer of that variety um, but not but the what they're selling is ignorance right and so like this is the bill of sale like <laughs> this is the person coming in and, and saying no 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 you know all those experts who say there's a lot of math involved Psh, <laughs> just kick the tires mm. right like this is what we're being sold and so we shouldn't we maybe that maybe the reality is is that like and, and I'm speaking to voters here maybe the reality is is that they're just things just aren't simple and that maybe when someone is coming to you and telling you that to trust them because they're really simple and they're going to fix it real fast, 
that maybe that that actually proves that they might not be evil, but they actually don't understand what they're talking about. Nothing is simple. And I know it's very tempting to to be woe, to be sucked into the siren call of don't worry, I'll take care of everything like some sort of weird political daddy figure. Um, but things aren't simple. And anyone who tells you they are is either stupid or lying. Full stop. Mm -hmm. And uh, with that, I think I'll move on to these Yale and Harvard protests. Unless yeah, I Sorry? No, I was just going to say, I really don't need to hear Doug Ford <laughs> referred to as a daddy ever again. That's like ruined my day. Yeah, great. That'll be hanging over our nightmares for weeks to come. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> uh, so, yes, um, on November 24th, uh, more than 40 protesters were arrested at a football game between Harvard and Yale when 150 students and faculty from both schools ran onto the field to disrupt the game in protest against their university's deep investment in fossil fuels, as well as their holdings in predatory Puerto Rican debt. The schools combined might have around $1.2 billion invested in the fossil fuel industry, although they haven't said just how much of their combined $70 billion endowments are in fact invested. Many people who had not planned the protest uh, ended up joining it in solidarity after it began. Uh, it only seems like it was the administrations uh, that were upset by the protest, however, with Yale saying um, it, uh, it was regrettable that the orchestrated protest came during a time when fellow students were participating in a collegiate career-defining contest and an annual tradition when thousands gather from around the world to enjoy and celebrate the storied traditions of both football programs and universities. It's possible that a divestment would inspire many other universities to follow suit, especially since Yale's investment officer is influential in his field, and as Emily Pontecarvo points out for Grist, the divestment trend has been gaining steam for some time among American colleges and universities, as, for instance, the University of California has purged fossil fuel from its investments uh, just recently. Wesley Augsbury of the Harvard team said, quote, Harvard and Yale can't claim to truly promote knowledge while at the same time supporting the companies engaged in misleading the public, smearing academics, and denying the truth. Ilana Cohen and Camilla Ledesma, students at Harvard and Yale, wrote for The Guardian, quote, We risked arrest on Saturday to challenge the system, the unsustainable status quo. Yet one moment of protest is far from enough. We're not going anywhere, and now we're asking you to join us and take action. Students and faculty, we're asking you to speak up and get involved. Alumni, we urge you not to donate until our demands are met. Community members, your voices, time, and commitment are the, to the cause are invaluable. Saturday was only the beginning. Help us build collective power on the path to justice. In response to the protests, Yale said that all our modern comforts and indeed all our basic necessities require oil products and that we should look at consumers instead of industry, while Harvard said that it's doing enough already. Both schools argued that they could better influence the fossil fuel industry from the inside by remaining shareholders. And uh, there are also student protests, students protesting the ironic naming of an earth sciences building at MIT after Shell, who donated $3 million to renovate it. At Columbia University, four students with Extinction Rebellion held a hunger strike last week to get Columbia to declare a climate emergency and to divest from fossil fuels. And hunger strikers also took to Nancy Pelosi's office in Washington recently 
XR hunger strikes have also been happening around the world since the 18th, including in Israel, India, Ecuador, Australia, New Zealand, and the UK. And finally, 29 people were arrested on the 17th, protesting the Cricket Valley fracking plant in New York. And that is the extent of what I have on these protests. Lauren, would you care to uh, say anything about them? Yeah, sure. Um, this action had like a really, really, um, like a, hit me at a soft spot in my heart uh, simply because of the divestment work that I used to do mm-hmm. at university and, and the way in which the divestment movement has completely fostered all of this amazing youth action that we've seen over the last couple years. Um, obviously not necessarily referring to like high school students who are who are protesting, but the divestment movement over the last like almost eight years, I'd say at this point, has has really fostered this community of young activists within within not just North America but but the world over and it's and it's equipped them with this kind of savvy and know how when it comes to nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience that, that kind of wasn't in my mind there or, or at least hadn't been in, in a really, really long time. Um, so this action was really, really cool to see, especially because it did have such a positive response from the rest of the student body. Um, I remember watching that video that Wesley Augsbury, um, of the Harvard team, I think he's actually the captain of the Harvard team, um, mm-hmm. in support of the divestment movement. And that was so cool because it shows that there's such, such support for, for concepts like divestment. And it's not just like the rad kids who were like walking out of class or whatever. It's, it's, <laughs> it's it, 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 it permeates the student body. I mean, if it's, if it's, I shouldn't be stereotyping here, but but if it's getting to like the university football captain, like that mm. that has influence there, um, and that means something. Obviously, the responses from Yale and Harvard were disappointing and annoying, but I mean, it's it's nothing that these organizers haven't heard before. There's always they're always pulling out these piecemeal excuses. I mean, the term like fiscal responsibility is tossed in the face of every <laughs> of, of every divestment activist, whether or not they're at a at a university or at an institutional level. Um, so this was really amazing to see and, and also just like sort of not on the coattails of it at all, but like to piggyback onto, onto it, um, and the success of divestment organizers over the last couple of weeks, I think just out of UBC last week, we saw not complete divestment, but divestment of, of a $300,000 or 300. I can't remember the exact amount. It was a lot of money mm. and it was a partial divestment on part of the university, uh, mm. which is, which is again, like one of the only universities across the country that has made that kind of move. Um, and, and all of those moves have happened in the last couple of years. So it's, it's been really fantastic to see, especially because focus hasn't been on divestment as much over the last couple of years. Um, so, so seeing that this movement is still alive and well and kicking and really powerful is so cool. Yeah. What's nice as well for me, at least was the, uh, reaction of the bystanders at the football game they uh no, they weren't getting upset that their game was being uh interrupted they just saw it and decided to oh yeah we agree with these people let's let's join mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. yeah the protest is being normalized and accepted and people understand that it's a part of a healthy of a healthy democracy and a healthy civil discourse is is amazing and really cool and and in no small part can be credited to to these youth activists mm-hmm. if i can add to that as well i think you know i I, huh, what what topic do I not have a lot to say about? Uh, I have a lot to say about uh, divestment, but just sticking on topic here really specifically, I think the other reason why um, these schools in particular uh, are 
more important uh, for sort of strategically, um, which is that these are generally the schools that because of the inherently corrupt system that we have pretty much groom people for success. They're the connections that you get from these schools, regardless of the education itself, the political connections and the business connections and the family connections and the contact with insanely, absurdly, just disgustingly rich people, even if you aren't yourself, uh, puts you in a different universe and it isolates people. And I, I'm going to stop myself from going on a sort of class system rant here. Mm -hmm. But I think it's it's incredibly important that the students, as they go through that school, as they do become the next CEOs, for better or worse, whether we think they should or not, uh, you know, CEOs and directors and business people and, and government people, to at least have a fundamental understanding of, the, of closing the loop, which is the privilege that got me here, that allowed me to come to this school and be the place that I'm at and the future that I'm going to have. I'm going to go into that with the knowledge that that system is inherently flawed. And I think at a fundamental level that that could do more good long term. I wish we had time for it. But like long term, that's immensely worth its weight in gold. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I totally agree with that assessment. And uh, with that, I will turn to Iron and Earth uh, that I have on it if you guys are down. Absolutely. Always happy to talk about Iron and Earth. They do amazing work. Okay, great. So I'm just going to summarize what they do briefly. Iron and Earth is a worker-led organization uh, based out of Alberta with chapters in Edmonton and St. John's, Newfoundland, with the goal, <clears throat> with the goal of ensuring long-term employment for Canadian oil sands workers by systematically retraining them to work in the renewable sector. The website reads, quote, Iron and Earth is led by oil sands workers committed to incorporating more renewable energy projects into our work scope. We created this organization during the spring of 2015 when oil prices started to fall. We were losing work and conversations uh, about needing to diversify our energy grid was dominating our lunch conversations on the job site. This moment acted as a catalyst for us to realize our shared vision for a sustainable energy future for Canada, one that would ensure the health and equity of workers, our families, communities, economy, and the environment. We founded Iron and Earth as a platform to engage in renewable energy development issues and to empower us to advocate for an energy future we can be proud of creating. Our membership has since grown to include workers from a variety of industrial trades, including boilermakers, electricians, pipe fitters, iron workers, and laborers. Iron Earth uh, acknowledge that renewable energy development can create millions of jobs in Canada, and that the skills are largely transferable between the industries. Thus, it is the oil and gas workers themselves who have the most to gain from a clean energy transition. They write, quote, Many workers desire renewable energy jobs, but lack a community where they can safely pursue or advocate for such a future. We help create a community by bringing members together to carry out events, campaigns, projects, and programs. These actions help forge relationships and networks that create a lasting foundation for positive change. Their website features a map of all the places renewable energy training is provided in Canada, as well as a list of places to look for jobs in the renewables industry. They also offer solar training themselves. They have launched what they call a National Upskilling Initiative, Upskilling Initiative, and they have formulated a workers' climate plan in which they call on the government to invest heavily in retraining. You can find out more at ironandearth.org. And that's what I have there. I'm I'm frothing. May I go first, Lauren? Do you sure. mind? Oh my God, please. <laughs> this uh, 
there's a reason why I'm absolutely broken record about uh, job programs being a indicator of a serious climate policy. Because if you don't, if you're not planning on putting on losing some oil jobs, you're not serious about climate change it, because we can't dig it up. Anyway, I'm not going to go into that argument. We, we either know that or we don't know that. Um, so anything that that promotes that is good. But here's the thing. Climate action has been successfully deterred, in my opinion, in Canada since Dion or before on the basis of pitting Canadians who are oil workers and Canadians who are not against each other. Mm. The second that barrier comes down, it's game over, folks. Game over. So that's why I'm always going on. That's why I'm really hard on the, the industry, but I'm always making sure to insert language at the end there saying that I am not against the workers. I want to give them jobs. I want to make sure that they don't experience any suffering for the transition that we have to go through, but they're going to have to trans transition. So I could not uh, possibly uh, agree with this more. Uh, and I want to highlight, this is the linchpin folks. This is, this is where we go. This is how we get motion. Mm -hmm. um, Lauren, did you mention you've uh, considered these folks before? Yeah, Iron and Earth has been around for a couple of years now. I think the first time I actually heard about them was um, in uh, in the Naomi Klein Avi Lewis documentary, uh, This Changes Everything, that came out several years ago. Um, one of their founders, Liam Hildebrand, was interviewed in it, if anybody wants to sort of see him in action. Though actually, there's, Iron and Earth has amazing uh, footage on YouTube, of course. But, um, but no, they're an incredible organization, and they're doing such important work, work that, in all reality, like so many nonprofits, they're, they're filling a gap that the, that the government should be, that should be filling. They're going into these communities. It's workers talking to other workers. So it's an incredibly trusted source. This isn't, this isn't sort of like greenies parachuting in or anything. It's, these are people who have been on the ground working in the tar sands or, or oil sands rather. Um, and, and they're part of these communities and they're, they're speaking this truth and they're doing this work of retraining and, and figuring out how to rehabilitate these communities that have been and will increasingly fall on really hard times. Um, so, yeah, Iron and Earth does amazing work, and there's a lot of ways to follow them and support them, um, and, and we need to look to them for guidance increasingly because because they have been doing this for so long, and, and, and they're insiders. They, they know what's up. They know what's needed within these communities. So, like, yeah, all credit to them for sure. Mm -hmm. And a, a, a the listener who um, pointed this out to us or who wanted us to talk about this mentioned that a friend of hers had contacted uh, their MP in Alberta and they were trying to get them to um, support Iron and Earth. And it didn't sound as though they had gotten any traction on that front. So I've, I have no idea if, if either of you have any notion of to what degree Iron and Earth is um, being considered by Albertan politicians or any Canadian politicians. Unfortunately, I, I don't have any insight into that, but but they should be. I mean, this is exactly who, theoretically, if if right wing politicians in in the West were to be believed and taken at their word and and understood to be honest, um, these are exactly the kind of allies they need to be. They need to be building in these relationships. They need to be having our people like those at Iron and Earth because they're doing the work that that those governments profess to to hold valuable to be preserving, not preserving, but but to be creating jobs and and helping those workers in that market. Um, and I think the fact that we're not seeing more uptake and we're not seeing more support for Iron and Earth from the Alberta government um, and from the Conservative government in general is an indication that they're being somewhat disingenuous with, with what they're looking for, which I mean, I know is nothing new. Everybody knows this to be true, but it's, it's further proof. 
And I th- like it's the, you know, like think about it for a second. I, I'm not speaking to you, Lauren, but just like to, for the audience, like think about it for a second. Like how powerful an election message would that be if Justin Trudeau got surrounded by iron and earth people, grabbed that football by the horn and said climate action is urgent. If we don't do it properly and smartly, we're going to suffer. And if we don't do it we don't do it by supporting our fellow Canadians. Our fellow Canadians are going to suffer. So that's why I'm committed to serious climate action change and working with these folks to make sure that no Canadian is is put in a worse off position or you know whatever or whatever the message is, right? But you could take that football and run straight to the end zone. I personally find it extremely suspicious, 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 because I know that they have political advo- uh, advisors who are paid. And what do I know? I'm just a radio host. It's literally the most obvious political move in the universe, which is why I don't believe for a second that they're serious. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of whispers of, it, of an upcoming Just Transition Act, potentially. Um, and I'll be really, really curious to see if the government brings in organizations like Iron and Earth to, to advise on what that Just Transition Act should look like. So I guess my final word on that would be is that if they do do that, uh, that will be because of the pressure we put on them, not because I was wrong, uh, not because I care about being wrong, but like that's part of the these things are happening because of the pressure. That's, oh, that's my prediction. You know, I yeah. care less about being wrong. Uh, I had my spicy Wheaties apparently today. Uh, we gave Stefan the week off. Uh, uh, listened to his pre-recorded voice there earlier. Uh, I've been talking a lot. Uh, Dave, we have two minutes. Um, do you have any thoughts today? Lauren, do you want a last word? I'll pass to Dave first. I um have nothing in my mind except for the glorious winter that is brewing outside so that that seems lovely that's all we got 